Welcome to the Cover Two Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover Two Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Welcome to this Cover 2 five-part podcast series on The Trade, a Showtime docuseries that provides a front-row seat to the opioid epidemic through the eyes of those most affected, the growers and cartel bosses, addicts and their families, and law enforcement. Each of our podcasts features an introduction by veteran documentary producer Pagan Harleman, who serves as the executive producer of The Trade and offers backstories and insights for each episode. That segment is then followed by interviews with subject matter experts on issues related to each of the trade episodes. In this episode, we'll get an overview of a program designed to fast-track overdose victims into treatment that begins in the ER. We'll also hear about a family court in Dayton, Ohio, that's helping families stay together by preemptively addressing substance use disorder for parents. As we close out the episode, we'll talk with Richard, who founded Recovery Works in Dayton, Ohio, to help his daughters struggling with heroin addiction. We begin with more insights into Guerrero, Mexico, from Pagan Harleman. The country itself um, doesn't have um, complete control in many areas, so it's like it's hard to define what lawlessness would be or look like when you're in a place where, like, you know basic things don't come through or don't happen. Um, I mean, you know, what we sort of saw when we were filming with Don Miguel is the steps that he would take to protect, he felt to protect his community and his people against incursions from enemy groups, you know, and that was a a whole range of things, you know, and we, we were not privy to all that he does, you know, but we saw him when he felt threatened, take steps to protect his community, you know, and he took that very seriously. It's an area, if everybody you talk to in Guerrero feels that the national government doesn't pay any attention to them, doesn't visit, doesn't invest any money. I mean, I'm, you know, making large statements, but many of the people we talked to were very frustrated by the lack of sort of investment and oversight, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think in those environments, personally, I I lived in, in West Africa, in those environments, you often see what's called a strong man. You see somebody who steps up and then takes action to protect the community. And people in some ways are like, well, at least somebody's doing something because, you know, it's, it's very hard. It's very chaotic when there's nobody in control. So in episode two, you profiled Richard, who runs a recovery clinic in Dayton, and he was struggling to help his daughter, Brittany, who's addicted to heroin. Um, I think that choice of Richard was a great choice to tell that story because it really underscores the, uh, the fact that it's, it's very, very difficult uh, to deal as a family with uh, heroin addiction and help a loved one. Even you could be deep into that as your career, and still it's hugely challenging for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that? 
Yeah, I mean, we met Richard early, early on. So, so I joined this program in like July 2016, and uh, Damon, who was my producer, who um, worked with the families and, and the addicts, he went out in August and he met with them. Um, I think he went out for like a recovery walk or something, and he met somebody. Um, and then through somebody else, we were introduced to Richard. So like early, early on in our filming, and um, my producers all said he was so amazing and so charismatic, and they told me, you know, about this center that he'd started. And then we were filming a bunch of other stuff, and um, but I kept having, you know, people have regular contact with Richard just to see what was going on with him. And at the time, I think both of his daughters were in treatment, and. Um, so, you know, we maintained contact with him and a couple months had gone by and we reached back out to him and then I had someone out there and I was like, well, let's, let's talk to Richard again. And we'd already been filming with a, a couple of other families and we hooked up with him again. And, um, you know, he's just, he's a very dynamic person. He's very committed to what he's doing, but, you know, to us in some ways it was very Shakespearean struggle to think that you're running a recovery clinic, but you can't help your own daughter, uh, get well, you know, you yeah. can help all these other people. And as a parent myself, I think that that's a lesson we run into all the time, which is sometimes as a parent, you're not the person who can give the lessons to your child. Yeah. Um, and we saw, we see in episode four, Laura Carter, another mother articulates that as well. She says, I may not be the right person to help my son. Yeah. Um, you know, so, I mean, I think Richard wanted with everything in his heart to help uh, both of his daughters, you know, but um, every individual makes their own choices. I mean, the, the lesson of addiction is that we are all individuals and we all make choices, you know, and, and it's very, very hard to accept when someone you love, even your own child, is doing things to harm themselves and you can't stop them, yeah. but, but you can't. In the opening scenes of episode two of The Trade, we hear frantic 911 calls from family members of overdose victims. 911, That same scene plays out every day throughout our country. And for those that are lucky enough to be brought back to life with Narcan, their close call with death can provide the necessary motivation to get help. But that window of opportunity to provide help actually closes in a hurry, as most people go into withdrawal and become dope sick right away. Joining me now to talk about AscentDD, an innovative new program to fast-track treatment for overdose victims in the ED, Brian Bayless from Ascent. You know, what happens is they're, uh, they're going right back out, and many of them are using because they, they're in withdrawal. So we have to have a better solution for that. Yeah. And Brian, you and your team, along with Metro Health, have come up with that, haven't you? Uh, we have, um, you know, with along with Dr. Joan Papp and um, with very generous funding from the Cuyahoga County Adams Board um, through Cures Funding, um, we started a program called Ascent ED. Um, and Ascent ED is a program where we actually have peer recovery coaches working inside of the Metro ER. And we have the opportunity after we get consent to meet with individuals that have uh, survived an overdose 
to try to get them into immediate treatment. Now, that program, it's modeled after another one I know. I think it's Anchor ED, right? That's correct. So we um, actually uh, met with the uh, Anchor ED people, and they uh, uh, trained us on some of the things that they did in their program, um, which has been very successful uh, in Rhode Island. In fact, they're in all 12 hospitals in Rhode Island. Uh, so they've, they've had a lot of success, and we basically have taken the program now and expanded it and made it our own. So the basics of the program, somebody comes into the ED, they've overdosed, take us from there. So somebody comes into the ED, they overdose, um, the doctors um, make sure that they're in good condition to speak with us. They uh, ask if they'd like to speak to a peer coach. Once our peer coach um, meets with them, um, our peer coach typically, you know, shares their experience, strengths, and hopes. Um, they build immediate trust uh, because that individual knows that that peer coach has been there and done that. Um, so once we build that trust, um, we let the person, you know, tell a little bit about their story and their journey. And then we uh, talk about treatment options and see if they, you know, have interest in treatment. If they tell us they are interested in treatment, um, we call uh, treatment centers. Um, we have a very high success rate um, in terms of getting people in. And once we find um, somebody, uh, an organization that's willing to take them, we will actually take an Uber with that individual to the treatment facility. Wow. So it's a free Uber ride for the patient. It's a free Uber patient. ride. Okay. Right. And what's the turn time to get them in? Because that's something that we've heard about for the last couple of years. Yeah. The it's long one. wait times to get people into treatment. Right. And people can't wait to get into treatment. We have to get them in immediately. Yeah. And so it's typically hours uh, that we're getting somebody into um, to be assessed for treatment. We know that there's a bed available, but, you know, we don't um, determine what their level of care is we leave that up to the treatment professionals. So you've also, as part of your program, you've got live peer support? So again, through some additional funding <clears throat> from Cuyahoga County, we're running a um, pilot that's beginning on March 1st, and we are gonna have live peer supporters um, with opiate survivors. And we're gonna really focus, um, our goal is to make this 52 week program where the individual has peer support for 52 weeks. Um, the benefits of uh, peer support are very well documented. Um, reduction in hospital days, reduction in ER utilization, better whole health, more engaged in their treatment. So we're really excited to have the opportunity to provide this. Um, I read a statistic that said that people that have overdosed have a nine to 20% chance of mortality in 90 days after that overdose. Wow. So you're getting right to them. We're getting right to them. And you're right improving their odds of survival. Absolutely. I mean, in the relapse rates, there was a study done, the relapse rates for opiate users um, are 60% in the first week after an overdose. 60%. Wow. So our goal is to uh, see if we can't make a significant dent in, in that. And we're going to do that through, especially in the first week, it's going to be daily contact. There's going to be some contact. And we have the opportunity now to also do HIPAA compliant video conferencing. So we're going to be using video conferencing, phone, text to make sure we have touch points 
um, especially in that first week and month, uh, to try to get people over that hump. So tell us a little bit about the rollout of this program, Ascent ED. How long did it take to get it rolled out? You know, it happened very quickly. Um, you know, we were very fortunate. Once we found out that Cuyahoga County, we submitted a proposal um, that Cuyahoga County said yes. Um, I worked with Dr. Joan Papp, um, who heads the Office of Opioid Safety at uh, Metro Health, and she did a phenomenal job of lining up the individuals and the processes necessary to uh, be able to implement this program at Metro Health. Um, we, you know, coordinated with HR of Metro Health, the legal department, um, to make sure that we were doing things that were, you know, HIPAA compliant and uh, also met the, the needs of Metro Health. Phenomenal partner. Metro Health is a phenomenal partner. Yeah. So we're talking about weeks here in terms of your rollout? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We had it up and running very, very quickly. Wow. Yeah. Tremendous. So let's talk about the successes. So right now, um, we started the program in early November. We, if we annualized our current numbers, we will have over 300 people into treatment and we'll meet with over 1,000 people. Um, those are just uh, individuals that have, um, uh, have survived an overdose, but we're also meeting with a number of the family members because they need support too. Uh, and that's been really uh, terrific. So we have a, a number of family members that continue to, to contact us. When somebody leaves, um, to, leaves the hospital, if they choose not to have treatment, they leave with a brochure with our number on it. And we've had a number of people that have called us, you know, days after their ER visit to saying, you know what, I'm ready now. So, you know, we're, we're very pleased to be able to provide that level of support. So how does the piece where you engage the family come into play? Is it family members that accompany them to the ED? Is that how that that's right. usually that, works? That's what we do. We, you know, we meet with the family. They're you know, in the waiting room. They have a lot of questions. They have concerns. And our peer recovery coaches are well-trained to be able to help them. Wow. Okay. So, Brian, what advice would you have for other communities that maybe want to take on a program similar to yours? Well, you know, we're happy to help. Uh, other communities. Um, they can reach me if they'd like. Um, I'm more than happy to uh, talk about our program. You know, we have built a model that we can uh, put a turnkey program in for other communities, other hospitals. In the first two episodes of The Trade, we witnessed young children caught up in their parents' busts. I wanted to revisit that issue. First, with Pagan Harleman. This stuff with the kids was just heartbreaking. Yeah. And, you know, you can you can become sort of jaded about some of this potentially, but that's, nobody gets over that. Well, yeah, that scene with the children being taken away from their mother as she heads to jail, that was, that was really, really heartbreaking, particularly where the girl asks over and over again how long until she gets to see her mom. Yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah. it really rips your heart out. Yes, and, and, and it, it raises the issue of, you know, whatever's going on with a parent, you know, and, and their struggles with addiction, they're still somebody's parent. And to that child, that's still the most important person in the world to them, you know. So, so yeah. you know, we do have to think when we deal with this about, about the kids and sort of the kids' experience of this epidemic. Next, we talk with Franklin County Detective Jake Smith. Well, uh, prior to the uh, traffic stop, uh, surveillance was conducted. Uh, we, after the surveillance was conducted and we observed the individual, um, Christine uh, 
coming from the residence, we made a traffic stop on the vehicle and basically during that stop, a lot of the times when we go through these uh, types of operations, this is a would be a standard type of procedure. Um, when we're when we're speaking with people that we have suspected have that have went to a drug house and uh, purchased narcotics, um, we understand what we're dealing with with both both a criminal aspect and the fact that they're also um, dealing with addiction every day. As you can see on the uh, video, that you know she had young kids there, she had her boyfriend there. It was it's a it was a very real thing for them and their family. I guess the most powerful <clears throat> moment probably of that scene was when she had said, if you see white stuff on the floor, it's just cereal. Uh, unfortunately, this has become uh, a very um, normal thing to see. Uh, you know, you have parents that are dealing with are dealing with addiction, struggling to take care of themselves, but they're also having to <clears throat> take care of children as well. So I think that when we see that it it becomes very it becomes very real in the sense of you're watching an individual who's supposed to be there taking care of their kids and uh, the, you know they're going day to day just trying to find um, something to uh, help them you know just basically survive for that day. So next after that stop, you begin to follow the. A chain from Christina to her supplier, a, a drug dealer by the name of Corey. Um, and in both busts, as it turns out, there's children involved mm. there. So let's talk a little bit more before we leave that, that topic. Let's talk just a little bit more about that next bust. And once again, a mom and her, and her kids and they're separated and what have you. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, again, um, Detective Edwards, he did a, a good job at um, moving up the chain from the traffic stop to the supplier. Uh, once we got into the residence, uh, there were several kids. Um, the living conditions there were um, unfavorable, to say the least. Uh, once the children, once we get on scene with these types of uh, scenarios, we will take we'll take the children obviously you see you know we put them try to put them as best as we can with someone that they are they're familiar with because obviously they don't a stranger being around children um, they may not know exactly what to do you know what I mean and uh, so once we call we'll call children's services um, if we can if we can find a responsible adult, a lot of the times we'll find a grandparent or an, you know, an aunt, an uncle or somebody responsible enough to take uh, custody of the kids to where we don't have to go through children's services. But unfortunately in this case, we actually had to go uh, transport them to children's services. Sadly, the scenes involving innocent children being taken from the home because of their parents' drug use plays out daily across our country. Today, children of parents that are addicted to opioids are flooding into the state's child protection system. They're the invisible victims of the epidemic. A recent survey found that half the children taken into custody in 2015 had parental drug use identified at the time of removal, and 28% of the children removed that year had parents who had used opioids, including prescription opiates, heroin, and fentanyl. That means nearly a third 
of children in custody are there because of the epidemic. I recently learned of a family court in Dayton, Ohio, whose sole focus is keeping at-risk families together by intervening before children's service has a chance to step in. That court is run by Tony Capizzi, who, among other things, serves as a senior judicial fellow for Reclaiming Futures and supervises national Reclaiming Futures judicial training. I sat down with Judge Capizzi in his office last week. And so we started back in September about 2016, a very specialized family treatment court. And really the whole focus of the family treatment court just designed to improve the safety and well-being for children, depends on the situation. So often we hear about the tragedies, as you described the videos on Showtime, that it, it shows the adults who are ODing, the adults who are arrested. Very little discussion or thought, or maybe just an afterthought, what about the kids? And, and this court felt very strongly that we can't lose track of the children. And so we started the Family Treatment Court, which really focuses on getting the parents or the caregiver better, but at the same time, protecting the children. We know, statistics show that once you remove a child from a family, the chance of the child going back is really reduced substantially. Hmm. And so if a person, adult, has an opioid problem, a drug problem, and the first reaction is to remove that, those children, um, you're basically saying the chance of parent, you getting that child back, is going to be slim or none. And so we started the program about 18 months ago now, and the real focus has been, let's treat the family, let's treat the caregivers, let's treat the parents who, frankly, are in my court because we have determined the children were at risk at a certain point. It's a dependency case. And so at a certain point, we're saying, parents, you cannot manage your children without help. So if you don't agree to join this program voluntarily, we will remove the children, plain and simple. So... Um, to get into the program, first of all, they get on the radar screen, I'll call it, for they, your program by do. being arrested first? No, they, they can be either charged, they can be arrested, or someone can issue a concern, a neighbor can say, um, the family next door is not taking care of their children. So we have what are called unofficial cases as well as official cases. So clearly, an official case is when the parent's been charged with neglecting their child. In hmm. an unofficial case, that child and family come to our attention, maybe because of a teacher, maybe because of a minister, somebody who contacts Children's Services. We have a very strong relationship in Montgomery County with the Montgomery County Children's Services Division of the county. And so, you know, we are responsible for caring for and dealing with the legal aspects of these cases. And many times, child welfare is responsible for the care of the children when there's not a crime involved. And so we entered a partnership with Children's Services. Mm -hmm. So if Children's Services find a situation that we can coordinate and work with them and the family, that charges don't have to be filed, we take those cases also. And those are a big motivation for families to say, join the program, go into drug treatment, let's maintain wraparound services, let's work with us and Children's Services and the community to protect the children while they're living with you and you're receiving treatment. And that's the critical part here. Our focus is maintaining the family unit while the adults are in treatment. If at any time, of course, we believe the children are at risk, they have to be removed, they will be removed. But I can say for the 18 months we've had this program, we haven't had to do that yet. So kind of take us through that entire process, sure. if you could, Judge. Sure. Somebody is, is referred to the program. Mm -hmm. They are met with various therapists and counselors 
who evaluate if they'd be appropriate for the program. I'm assuming they meet the criteria, and I don't want to go into the specific details, but the criteria. Um, then they'll come to the first session of court, and they will have understood and explained to them all the responsibilities they have. It's to stay clean, keep very involved with the probation officer, be very be very involved with either that person, or if it's unofficial, with a case manager from Children's Services. It's making sure you make all your appointments for therapy. It's being in the appropriate drug treatment program. Not only being in it by a body being there, but participating in it, being actively involved in, the, in your treatment, and, of course, taking care of your children. They come to our court. We have an initial hearing. We explain the rules again, get them to sign off on or commit to it. And then, really, we meet with them regularly. One of the keys of a specialty court is the ongoing face-to-face contact with the, drug, with the judge. And so, in most cases, uh, a person sees a judge maybe once every three months or six months. In a treatment court... They see the court every week or every other week, depending how far along they are in the process. And so we're there to remind them every week that if you don't do A, B and C and D could be consequences. And so once they are in the program, they work with, again, their their case managers from Children's Services. Because in every case, we're talking about a, a parent or custodian who has a heroin or other drug problem who has children, and if we don't be actively involved in this arrangement, the children will be removed. So again, the goal is to make sure the children stay with the family Mm -hmm. while the family's building up the resources and education they need to get off drugs. And so they'll see the court, be it myself or a magistrate, who will be involved on the bench every week to focus on, okay, let's see what you've done. Let's And, you know, it's amazing when you do these so many of these people, they may be addicted to drugs, and I know a lot of your listeners may not hear this, but they didn't want to be. Or they got in a situation where they can't get out of it. Sure. And without help, they won't get out of it, and these children are lost to society. Yeah. And so as much as people think sometimes, middle America many times says, well, they're just drug addicts, let them go. But what about the kids? And, and we have to focus on these children. Yeah. Do we want all these kids in foster care? The, the people that say, well, we'll arrest all these adults. Well, you believe they should take care of them. They can't take care of themselves. And so this program has been very successful. Uh, we recently got a, a major grant from the OJJDP, Office of, Office of Judicial Justice Crime Prevention, uh, for $2 million to really help us enlarge the program. It's gone so well that we're going to grow the program, um, really, by, by three times. Uh, it's expensive because mm-hmm. we have all the players involved here at the same time working, but we've got a major grant that will take us through 2022 to make sure this program um, not only stays at the level that, but continues to grow to help more children and families in Montgomery County. So, Judge, I'd like to have you quantify the successes. How many people have families have gone through the program so far in the 18 months? Well, um, I'm always slow on my numbers because the numbers are, are, go by quicker than I do. I would say that um, we probably have had 75 to 100 families go through the program. Um, I would say that we have probably saved 100, 150 children from being removed from their home, if not more like 200 now. Next, we talk with Richard from Episode 2 of The Trade, who runs Recovery Works, a successful treatment center in Dayton, Ohio. 
He shares the backstory behind his daughter's struggles with heroin addiction and his role in supporting their recovery. It's an interesting situation to watch in episode two where we're introduced to you um, and we're introduced to you in the professional setting and then they pan back to your office and then we get the backstory with you and your family. So tell us just a little bit about the backstory, what we don't see on the cameras. Well, the reason uh, Recovery Works is in existence, um, both of my daughters um, started to suffer from addiction, well actually mental health and addiction issues. Um, um, one of my daughters started at a young age and was diagnosed with panic and anxiety. Um, and back in those days I didn't know any better and she was um, prescribed uh, benzos to treat her panic and anxiety which we believe became, you know, the drug of choice for many teenagers. So what ended up happening, as time progressed, um, their addiction progressed, and I tried to find them help um, around 2008. And in Montgomery County, it was very difficult to get help. Um, there, There was places to go, but the system was backlogged. Um, you had to wait long periods of time to get an assessment. Then once you were assessed, they refer you to another treatment agency, and then you'd have to wait to get in there and get a bed. And I set out on a mission that at some point in time, I was going to go through the process, and um, I wanted to open a treatment center. Um, because people familiar with addiction know that when people want help, we have a small window of opportunity. We can't wait to help people two, three, four, five, six weeks and months later. Yeah. Uh, the window of opportunity closes quickly. Oftentimes it's circumstantial, isn't it? Somebody ODs, oh, yeah. somebody gets into trouble. Age, and yeah. Especially the, the last several years that we've went through with the opiate epidemic, people people may not have another day. Yeah. So we found recovery works on that basis, where so, if people want help, we want to get them into help and get them into treatment and get them started as quickly as possible. Well, then um, comes to the point in time, um, we had periods of uh, sobriety with my daughters. Um, and, you know, as a father, it was a struggle even um, with my professional um, designation of being a licensed chemical dependency counselor. You know, when you add the, the father piece, you know, all bets are off, so to speak. And um, it was very difficult. The girls would seem to be, neither one of them would, you know, be doing well at the same time. Um, and, and it was a constant battle. So um, we were able to, on and off over the last several years, we were starting to get um, longer periods of clean time with the girls. Um, and then I think with the, with the story uh, that we're referring to in the trade, um, Brittany had um, relapsed, and um, I have custody of uh, my grandkids as a result of the drug addiction, and um, Brittany was asked to leave the home. Um, yep, that's where we come in. That's, that's where, where we, we come in. Up. Right, right. So, and she's staying at a extended stay hotel, and Correct. she's kind of doing a detoxing. And they talk about you mentioned 
uh, that that's a scary thing because someone had uh, overdosed every single day the last week that she happened to, to be there. So you're struggling. The reality with- is I know that you have to allow people to suffer their natural occurring consequences. But what an individual or a parent or a loved one's threshold of pain that they can tolerate um, while watching their loved one, you know, slowly die, um, you know, you can't set, you know, you can't tell anyone how to do that. So, you know, I, I think when they were filming that, it was wintertime. Yeah. So I, I did pay for the extended stay that Brittany was staying in. I'd go up there and pay that paid the room fees. I wouldn't, you know, give her money. I'd buy her food and bring her food and those type of things. I knew that she wasn't doing well. I knew she wasn't detoxing. Um, Even you... With the hopes that she was going to go into a residential treatment that I was trying to work out for her so that she could actually physically detox. Yeah. Even you struggled with the same thing that all of us other parents out there have struggled with in terms of how best to support your child who's right. who's trying to work their way through that and, and not enable them and make matters worse. And so I think right. that, that kind of illustrates and underscores really that, how difficult this challenge is. And, and yeah. so, so, okay. Yeah, it's, it's something people, you know, no one, you know, wakes up and um, is prepared to deal with um, a drug addiction such as heroin or how it's evolved into fentanyl now um, in their children. It's, it's, I, I, I personally am a recovering alcoholic and I can tell you that I, going through my own recovery, did not prepare me to deal with um, the depths that heroin addiction takes someone. Or, you know, all bets off, you know, I could sit here and tell you in a counseling session what I think you should do. But like you had indicated, when it's your own, you know, I previously alluded to the fact that I can't tell someone what you can tolerate, what you can't tolerate. I know there has to be some sort of line where you have to keep the other family members safe. You really don't want them around the children. You don't want drugs in your own home. So I chose the lesser of the evils and had hoped uh, what ended up happening actually did happen. I was, the whole time I was trying to get Brittany um, picked up so we could get her into uh, jail or arrested or charged for for something, so I had a chance to get her detox. I, so I was at the point where I thought that was the only way. Yeah. So we hear from you first, and then they flip over to Brittany in her hotel room, and they get her thoughts. She says it's an awful feeling of helplessness, um, and that um, my dad is the best man in the world, and she felt like she was putting a knife in your back. Um, she's depressed and uses dope, and she continues to do it. And if that isn't the definition of insanity, I don't know what is, she says. So you watch this. That had to be uh, just very difficult to hear her side and her honesty there. Yeah, it, it, it was, but it isn't, you know, seeing this day in and day out, I, I knew. 
Um, but when you see your own child suffering like that, um, I think, I think the worst part to this was actually going into the hotel and seeing how she was living. Um, actually watching the video and and then seeing that reenacted and, um, I'd kind of forgot that piece, but just going in there and, you know, being, uh, afraid to touch things and didn't want to get poked and, um, that, that was probably horrible too. And, you know, I've seen Brittany cry. I've seen her in those desperate states. And, you know, in some in- instances you hope for that because when people become desperate and they get sufficient pain, maybe they, they'll become willing to do something different. Well, I think in the interview there with her, she certainly expressed some hope. You know, she said that she wants to be a mom. She wants to go to school events. And she she really doesn't want her kids to see her that way. So I, I just felt like there was a lot of deep down hope there that she expressed, certainly. And so, but you did, uh, I mean, uh, hats off to you because you did a tough thing. You you made her kind of go before the judge alone. And, and so, you know, most parents are compelled to be right there, to be all over that. But but you 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 checked yourself from that. And I would imagine that had to be tough. Um, actually, it was a learning process because there was some times in my life where I bailed her out and I saved her. But through, through the last several years of watching her and, and then actually working in the field, I knew, I, I, I almost prayed for her to be in that situation. I actually contacted Miamisburg Court and they raised her bond to the maximum they could do for her committed crime so she wouldn't be able to get out. And that was upon your request? Yes, I called the judge's office yeah. and uh, they said they would do what they would do. I needed her held. Yeah, good for you. Yeah. Good for you. So let's talk for just a minute if we could. I really appreciate your time today, Richard. And I, sure. and I know I said 10 minutes and now we're at 11. So we'll go okay. just a, li- a little bit longer All here. Right. Um, so I want your comments on the, and, and if we could have the background and your comments. You're there with Debbie and you're talking over your daughter's future. Um, set the table on that because I think a lot of parents go through that same process. Now, uh, and let me ask you a personal question. Y- you and Debbie, are you together or are you not together? No, no. We, we, we divorced in 2000. Um, okay. But, but we're friends. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. So, uh, but that does, uh, you know, a divided home that adds another level of complexity in many cases, many situations, uh, certainly my own uh, uh, included. So um, tell us a little bit about that. The documentary didn't uh, allude to is Brittany had more charges uh, catch up to her. So she actually ended up going into a longer term inpatient setting before she was released. Um, to recovery works for us to continue her treatment and her and her Vivitrol injections. So probably a good um, thing. Yeah, it was a it was a good thing. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, she's been on um, intensive probation for this whole time. Um, you know, which we utilize the criminal justice system. You know, people think going to jail for their children is the worst thing. But I'm telling you, if, if we get a chance to help somebody come out of the county jail and, and work with a Vivitrol injection, it's, it's one of our best resources to help people stay off of opiates. Yeah. So that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, everybody, no parent wants their child in jail. 
but I'm sorry when they're suffering from that that type of addiction. It's it really is a blessing as long as we can get them into treatment and they're willing to get into treatment, whether it's a nudge from the judge or they're ready. Um, that is very successful. But so, Brittany, you know, had the probation on her. She had uh, prison time on the shelf, and but the good news is we got the Vivitrol started on her, and um, which is the most difficult to do because you need seven to ten days off of opiates to be able to get the injection. Yeah. Takeaways as we close down this segment. Can you give us some takeaways to share with others out there, other parents that have loved ones that they're trying to support the best that they can? Seek professional help for yourself. Um, one of the most important things is have people to talk to for yourself. There's many support groups out there that help parents, um, family members, loved ones. You got to take care of yourself. It's a difficult time. Um, people become codependent, which in some cases can be become as sick as the person using. But we also can get well too, and and sometimes we have to love it at, at a distance. And if you need help doing that, um, please find the appropriate treatment center um, that has experience in doing that, and um, try to make arrangements to help your family get in the treatment and also. Um, have some family counseling for yourself. Pagan, thank you so much for this introduction to the second episode. What final thoughts would you like to share with us about episode two? Um, you know what I would want to say is that we, um, you know, during the course of, of filming and, and working the show for over a year and a half, we encountered so many amazing people and so many amazing programs that we did not have a chance to follow. Um, many like recovery coaches. We talked with some here in New Jersey and um, even open injection sites, which there's one in lower Manhattan we talked to. Um, uh, I would just say that, you know, by no means is our show a comprehensive look at the opioid epidemic. This is something that is so complex and so far ranging, you know, basically it's a Vietnam every year in terms of the number of deaths. So it's a very, very complex thing. Um, and I and I would just want to acknowledge that there's so many very very worthy parts to this that we didn't have a chance to delve into. So I would hope that each of these episodes just begins a conversation that for people who are interested and invested, they continue that they listen to your program and that they um, turn to other resources because there are other people, um, especially for parents or anybody who's struggling, you know, that they can connect with and talk to. And there's always hope. There's always hope. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 podcast production on The Trade, the Showtime docuseries revealing the grim realities of the opioid epidemic through the eyes of those most affected, the poppy growers, addicts and their families, cartel bosses, and law enforcement. Please join us for the next episode, where once again we'll be joined by the trade executive producer, Pagan Harleman, who will introduce episode three and the backstory behind it, followed by a discussion with Dan Malloy, one of the creators of Quick Response Teams here in Ohio. And we'll also hear about the opioid court in Buffalo, New York, that acts as an on-ramp to drug court, where treatment begins within 24 hours of arrest. We'll conclude our next episode with expert analysis from Robin Starr of the family dynamics that come into play with opioid use disorder. My name is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. 
This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.